Okay, good morning, everybody. Okay, so let's start uh, with our visualization of the uh, lineage masters and the meditation deities, all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and ourselves surrounded by sentient beings. And when we think that you know we're leading sentient beings and taking refuge and generating bodhicitta as we recite the verses, uh, we shouldn't do that with a, a mind of, oh, I'm so superior, I'm leading them, you know, to take refuge. But uh, rather focus more on the plight of all of us sentient beings together as we um, as we muddle our way through samsara, overwhelmed by afflictions and karma, but not even recognizing that, you know, most of the people on the planet have no idea about what samsara is. They know that there's suffering in life, but that. It's not clear what the cause is, what the solution is. And so uh, because of that, wanting to uh, be happy and not suffer, continually uh, are run by their afflictions and create more and more karma to sustain samsara. Despite human beings, anyway, having human intelligence that can be used to create good rather than harm. Let's cultivate our motivation. One way the self-centered thought uh, arises is when we don't get what we want when, uh, not necessarily uh, material things, but when things don't uh, work out the way we would like. So we tend to get very upset because we had our plans and our way of doing things and how we would like something to unfold and either other people are stepping in and changing that plan or other external circumstances are changing so we can't do what we planned. So uh, we get upset and then uh, ruminate get more upset. Maybe we blast somebody. But it's uh, a way of making ourselves miserable that we have polished to perfection. And in doing so, we make those around us miserable and create the kind of karma that acts as interferences to our dharma practice in this life and in future lives. 
So it's good to see this pattern in ourselves and work at cutting it off. And cutting it off early, right when the mind starts to say, but it should be. As soon as you hear yourself say the word should, be aware that you're in trouble. Because should has a very little connection with reality. So we can go on and on about how things should be, how people should behave. But should, uh, the only thing should changes is uh, our state of mind making us uh, more unhappy, more cynical. Aside from that, should doesn't do anything. (laughs) And so here is where patience and fortitude come in to really accept how things unfold, accepting it doesn't mean we just sit back and maybe let things fall apart, but we can do something to improve the situation, but we do it without a mind of anger or arrogance. And so we can respect other sentient beings without respecting their afflictions. We respect them because they have the potential to become fully awakened, but we don't respect their afflictions even if their afflictions bring them much worldly gain. Because the afflictions are the source of their pain. So with a mind that respects sentient beings, is aware of their potential, aware of how they, like us, shoot themselves in the foot, then let's develop the intention to become fully awakened, to reverse that process in ourselves, and to help others reverse it as well.
So really separating sentient beings out from their afflictions, you know, separating them out from their actions while still holding them accountable in society and holding ourselves accountable. You know, there are many fine lines here that uh, it takes some time to really figure out and negotiate because we are so much in the habit of uh, somebody doing something uh, motivated by afflictions that we instantly go to, that person is rotten to the core. Yeah. Um, and as soon as we think they're rotten to the core, then, of course, our pride steps in. Yeah. And, uh, and we give up on certain sentient beings. And it's not that, that we should hound ourselves of, oh, I shouldn't give up on sentient beings. This should really doesn't do much, you know? But think of how the bodhisattvas and the Buddhas haven't given up on us, despite what we do. And then that gives us uh, more inner strength to not give up on others. Yeah. Because we really see it's by the kindness of the, the holy beings that we're able to learn and make any progress whatsoever. And you can see, you know, sometimes it must be very tempting to go. <laughs> you know, can you see Tenrezi with his thousand arms going, Ugh, what are they doing? You know, I've been teaching them this and that, and look what they're doing. You know, phooey. I'm going away, you know. Uh, but Chenrezig doesn't do that. So if he doesn't do that for us, we shouldn't, you know, let's not do it for others. Okay, so uh, Shantideva is going to continue, continue to uh, smash our self-centeredness. So I hope your self-centeredness is all prepared and ready to tell uh, Shanti Deva that he's wrong. Yeah? Yeah. But what, one thing that I've noticed, in, um, and it'll, it'll come up, well, it came up last week, um, of how it's easy to misinterpret some of uh, Shanti Deva's passages. Okay. So if we go back to 126, which we did last week, if for my own sake I cause harm to others, I shall be tormented in hellish realms. That, that we can accept. You know, if we harm others, it, the boomerang is coming back to us. But if for the sake of others I cause harm to myself, I shall acquire all that is magnificent. So those two lines... It's very easy to misinterpret. And it sounds like I should cause harm to myself. And this fits in very well with the uh, uh, 
it's Judaic Christian, but I think it's more Christian than, than the Judaic part of I'm a sinner, so I should self-flagellate, you know? I'm a sinner, so I deserve to be harmed. I should harm myself. I mean, we have the old practices of the Catholic Church behind that. You know, you beat yourself and so on. Um, so, you know, when Shanti Deva says that, he's not saying that we should punish ourselves and hate ourselves and feel guilty for everything that happened in the universe, even though we weren't behind it. Yeah, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you know, if in certain situations, if I have to give up what I want to be of great benefit to somebody else, then why not do it? Yeah, why not? Why sit there and just say, I'm more important, I'm more important, when we can look with our wisdom and see that if we just move a little bit, you know, and do something, we can be of benefit. Yeah, so the verses are not telling ourselves to hate ourselves and beat ourselves up because we're sinners and make ourselves suffer in order to purify. Okay, those kind of ideas are not found in Buddhism. Yeah, and so if you grew up with those kind of ideas, this is the time to really uh, bring them to the forefront and investigate them and prove to yourself how they are incorrect. You know, because those kinds of things don't do any good. Yeah, what good does harming yourself do to the world? Okay, and so it's not saying harm yourself. It's saying in situations where we can be of benefit yeah, to sit there and be attached to our own stuff is it's not really fair to our own potential as well as to the other person's happiness. Okay. And I say this because I know at the beginning when I uh, was studying Shantideva, you know, a long time ago, um, I would read things about, you know, kind of sacrificing yourself for others. And then I thought, okay, I've, I've got to do that. And, and so there were many situations where I didn't speak up, where looking back on it now, I think I should have. Yeah. But I didn't speak up because I was thinking, you know, oh, let others have their way, let them do it the way they want. And many times that I should do that because I'm just grasping onto my way and it's not something that's important and I'm just being arrogant. In which case it's better just do it somebody else's way and learn from doing that. But um, what I'm talking about is, is situations, you know, where somebody is doing something that's actually harmful and not speaking up about it because um, it's like, uh, well, I cherish others more than I'm myself, and if I speak up, I'm being self-centered. And, you know, that's not what Shantideva is talking about, okay? And I think really looking at how His Holiness handles the whole situation 
with the Beijing government is a good example of this. You know, he speaks up about what, when harmful things are done. He doesn't just say, well, well, no problem. A little bit of genocide, genocide, no, not so bad. A little bit of environmental destruction, no, I'm not going to say anything. You know, His Holiness doesn't whitewash things. Yeah? But he comments on them without being arrogant, without self-importance, and without blaming specific people. He talks about the behavior or the attitude. Okay, so this is a very good example, I think. And he encounters very difficult situations. I, I remember when um, some years ago, maybe this was the first time it happened in India, where one uh, Tibetan man in Delhi um, uh, self-immolated in protest about what was going on. Mm, yeah. And uh, everybody was shocked. And the Tibetan community in general said, what a hero. He gave his life for Tibet. Yeah. And they erected a statue on the backside of the, the big korwa around His Holiness's residence in Nangyal Monastery. Now, in His Holiness's position, what's he going to do? He can't say, you know, what this person did was foolish. You know, you shouldn't do that. That's foolish, and he wasted his life. I mean, because the whole rest of the community was looking at him as a hero. They were looking at at him as the part that sacrificed his life for Tibet, you know, and praising him in that regard. But His Holiness couldn't really praise that deed because, I mean, we have vows against praising death, don't we? You know, praising death is is a parajika offense. It's serious. Yeah, if you do that as a monastic, you're out. So he's he's not going to praise death and encourage uh, other Tibetans to follow this man's example. I mean, of course, he was saddened by the, you know, what happened. But what, so he had to navigate that of, uh, you know, respecting the community, thinking this guy was a hero, but also making it known that this is not the way to to work in the situation, yeah, and so at one point he said, "We should live for Tibet rather than die for Tibet. You'll be more effective if you live for Tibet." You know, so he didn't criticize that other man, but he laid out what he thought was the best action, yeah, and that really struck me. You know, that that when there's dire situation, you have to live for it. Yeah? It doesn't mean that, that you, uh, you know, protect yourself above all others with a selfish mind that, you know, my life is more important than others. It doesn't mean that. But we shouldn't actively harm ourselves. 
know, it's better to work for the benefit long-term of, of a cause, okay? So 127 kind of um, follows up on that same kind of thing of uh, benefiting others but harming self. Yeah. So 127 says, By holding myself in high esteem, I shall find myself in unpleasant realms, ugly and stupid. But should this attitude be shifted to others, I shall acquire honors in a joyful realm. Okay, so, you know, by hold, it's true. By holding ourselves in high esteem, I shall find myself in unpleasant realms, ugly and stupid. Okay, holding yourself in high esteem. So let's say you have a position in society where, uh, you know, you are uh, working for the media and you have the freedom to say different things. Um, but And you hold yourself in high esteem and so you just, you want the ratings, you want the success, you want the fame. And so you disparage other people, okay, motivated by one's own arrogance and one's own negative kind of ambition. And so it becomes quite obvious, you know, when we know about karma, that if we act, that, if we act in that way, um, you know, if, if you see yourself as above others and act in that way, you know, karmically, what's going to happen in the future life, your high status this life, next status, next life, low status, you know. And so you switch places, so to speak. And what's causing the, that switch is our own arrogant attitude. Okay, so he's warning us against that. And, but should this attitude, okay, of holding in high esteem be shifted to others, yeah, so if we hold others in high esteem, I shall acquire honors in a joyful realm. Now, does that mean that we hold all others in high esteem so that we support whatever they say and whatever they do, even if it's harmful? Is that what Shantideva is saying? If I shift this attitude and hold others in high esteem, you know, somebody is, uh, uh, you know, doing things that that's harmful, you know. You, you know, maybe you you know somebody who uh, has all the kind of warning signals for being a mass shooter. Now, there are warning signals about it, you know, but you hold them in high esteem uh, and you say, oh, if I hold them in high esteem, I shall acquire honors in a joyful realm. So, you know, uh, I know that uh, this person has a whole trove of guns and they're leaking state secrets and um, they make very violent uh, comments online, uh, but I respect them and hold them in high esteem. Is that what Shandy Deva is saying? No. 
okay? What he's talking about is, you know, in general, our attitude towards sentient beings, to hold them in high esteem in the sense that they want happiness, they don't want suffering, they mean well, even though they are often run uh, or overwhelmed by afflictions, okay? But we, we can still respect them as sentient beings, but it doesn't mean we respect all their actions and their attitudes and praise them for acting in harmful ways. It doesn't mean that. Okay? So these kinds of things, you know, when you read it literally sometimes, it's very easy to misunderstand. And I once asked um, one lama about that, about, you know, why things in, in some of the text were, were so much on, on one extreme, you know, um, like, you know, like saying things like this that could be understood. Uh, because in the West, when somebody says something, we take what they say literally, don't we? You know, somebody says, I want to do this, I'm going to do that, this is good, this is bad. We, we take it all very literally. Yeah, what Islam explained to me is that uh, in Tibetan society, uh, that's not the case, okay? And he, was, he, he said, okay, when people's behavior is over here, and their way of thinking is over here on the detrimental side, yeah, what they do is they give a statement that's over here, totally extreme on the positive side, yeah, and the aim is to bring that person to the middle, <laughs> yeah, with a correct understanding, yeah. Whereas you do this same thing in Western culture, then we go from here to over there and say, oh, I should act completely, you know, in this very other extreme way. You know, it's kind of like uh, you have cold water in your cup and what you want is um, room temperature water. So you pour hot water, boiling water in it to get it in the middle, the temperature you want it. Yeah. Uh, what we do is you pour the boiling water in and then you pour so much boiling water that when you start to drink it, you burn your mouth, okay? So, um, you know, to make an effort to, to really understand many of the statements, yeah. And it's delicate because there, it's so easy to say, well, yeah, what they're saying is extreme, so... Actually, what I'm doing is, is not so bad. I'm doing the best I can over on this extreme side, you know, because I don't want to go over there to the extreme that, you know, Shanti is saying, so I'm okay over here on this extreme. You know, it's hard to bring ourselves to the middle, but and to really understand and think, you know, what situations do I act this way in? What situations do I act that way in? And what kind of motivation do I need to have in all these situations? Okay, it's, it's not easy.
Mm-hmm. Or at least I should say, I didn't find it easy, <laughs> you know, and often still don't. It's like, mm-hmm. Okay, 128. If I employ others for my own purposes, I myself shall experience servitude. But if I use myself for the sake of others, I shall experience only lordliness. So the same thing, yeah. The point is, yeah, if I employ others to serve me and I'm just bossing them around and, you know, lording over them because I think I'm better than them and I have the power to boss them around or whatever it is, then I'm creating the cause to, instead of being born high status with that kind of power, to be born, you know, in servitude. Um, But if I am humble, and humble does not mean you have low self-esteem. Yeah, this is really important. Humble does not mean you have low self-esteem. It means that you have so much inner confidence that you don't need to let others know how wonderful you are. Yeah? We think, oh, somebody's very humble. Oh, they have poor self-esteem. And it seems like this, you know. Uh, No. If you look at his holiness, you know, again, very humble. In um, the year that he won the Nobel Peace Prize, he was uh, also, at the time, at that time, he was um, uh, in a conference when a speaker in a conference uh, in Southern California, and. Uh, he was like, they had a lot of experts on the stage, and he was the expert of experts. And I forget what the question came up, but somebody in the audience, when it was Q&A time, you know, asked a question uh, to the panel in general, and everybody looked to his holiness (laughs) and said, okay, you answer it. Yeah? And his holiness kind of sat there, and then he said, I don't know. And the room became incredibly silent. You know, here the expert of experts said, I don't know. How is that possible? How many of us would say, I don't know, in front of a crowd of thousands of people? You know, Our ego wouldn't let us say, I don't know, yeah? We would instead change the subject, um, make the uh, reply in such a way that we are putting down the person who asked the question for asking a stupid question. We would uh, make up some answer that we had no idea if it was true or not. Okay, we would do anything except say, I don't know, in front of a crowd of people, let alone to one person in front of us. Okay, because our pride, our honor is at stake. 
Yeah, we're very attached to our reputation. And if I say I don't know, it it means I don't know, which means I'm stupid. Oh, I'm such a horrible person. I didn't know the answer to this question. You know, I should have been Buddha already so that I was omniscient and I could give the most erudite reply, but I'm not Buddha yet. What's wrong with me? Okay. We go into that kind of stuff. His Holiness said, with perfect self-confidence, I don't know. And he didn't start crying and telling himself that he was worthless. Yeah. He just said, I don't know. And then he turned and he looked at all the other experts and said, what do you people think? Yeah? I mean, how many of us would do that in front of an audience and say, I don't know, and then ask other people who did not have the same high status we do, even though they had some high status, and ask them for their answers. How many of us would do that? Any volunteers? I don't think so. Uh, Yeah? But what's interesting about these verses here is, uh, you know, Shantideva is really showing us the karmic effects of our self-centered mind. Yeah? That when we act uh, in a very arrogant way, we will find ourselves the underlings in a future life. Yeah? And similarly, when we oppress people in future lives, we will find ourselves as oppressed. So this does not mean that we look at oppressed people and say, you deserve it because in a previous life you oppressed others. Okay, we never use karma to justify social inequality inequality okay karma yes you know why people have low status because you know so it's interesting you could think oh I better not say this people will get upset I'm going to say it anyway it's karma I'm just talking about karma as an example if you were a Nazi in a previous life then maybe you're born as a Palestinian in this life. Yeah. Or you were a Nazi in previous life. Now in uh, uh, Sudan, there's incredible fighting. Maybe you born in Sudan uh, this lifetime. Yeah. You caused people to flee their home in one lifetime. Then you have to flee your home in a future lifetime, okay? So to see those things, and if we are aware of that, that helps us abandon the negative karma, creating the negative karma. It helps us see how our own self-centeredness is our enemy and brings suffering upon ourselves and others, okay? We do not use it to point the finger at other people 
and say, you deserve this. Okay. Uh, and people often ask this about karma uh, and say, are you blaming the victim? No, we're not blaming the victim. Yeah. Because it, if, if you're coming, if you don't understand that cause and effect are simply cause and effect, that there's no one dishing out rewards and punishments, that things just happen because the causal energy was created, yeah? If we understand like that, then, yeah, we can learn from how cause and effect works. If we have a mind of reward and punishment, then when somebody suffers, we say they're being punished, they deserve it. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know, you just got your tooth pulled out and your eye poked out, you deserve it. That is so lacking in compassion, isn't it? You know, that we do not use that, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. And as a tip to tell you, because I made a big mistake, is when, because uh, sometime you may be invited to give a talk to a group of people um, who uh, are oppressed or were <laughs> oppressed or their friends just had a very bad accident, and those people ask you a question about karma. Okay? And, but these are people who are not Buddhist. So you, I really recommend that's not the time to introduce them to the idea of karma, because they're hurting inside. And because they're hurting inside, they will take what you say about karma as saying uh, the victim deserved it, which is not what you're saying, but that's how they do it. Okay, so two confessions. I'm going to tell you two times when I made this mistake. It took me one time wasn't enough, okay? Um, I'll tell you the second time first. Um, the the second time was, you remember many years ago after the plane was shot down over Lockerbie, Lockerbie, Scotland? Yeah. And there were a bunch of students from, I think, the University of Syracuse, some university in, in uh, New York, who were killed on that plane. Yeah. And it was a terrorist attack from, I believe, Libya. You know, arranged for. I don't know how they did it, but they were behind shooting the that plane over, and all these students and other people were were uh, killed. So I was uh, had been scheduled to give a talk at that university. Yeah, so I was giving a, a talk, and the question of karma came up, and somebody said, uh, "Well, what about what just happened when all the students?" from our university were killed in this um, terrorist uh, attack which crashed the plane. And, and then I started explaining karma. Oh, 
you know, if you have an untimely death in this life, it means in a previous life you killed somebody or you cut somebody else's life short. That was the wrong thing to say. Because they just, I mean, they're grieving the loss of their friends and people from their school. And they heard that as these people, you know, were horrible people because in a previous life they did that. So now they're getting punished by dying in this plane crash and they deserved it. That's how they heard it. That wasn't how I meant it. But, you know, when you don't think of the audience you're speaking to and you just say something, you know, it's like open mouth, insert foot, and hurt a lot of people. Okay, so you don't do do that. Okay, I'm telling you. The other time I did it was even worse which is why I told you the second incident first. The first time I did it, I had been, um, and I should have known better, yeah, but uh, I thought I was just explaining Buddhism. I was asked to speak to a Jewish group, yeah, so then somebody raises their hand and says, well, what about the Holocaust? How do you explain that, you know, because this is one of the big things for the people who suffered in the Holocaust, is God supposed to be good, and you're the chosen people, and and there you are getting exterminated, you know, so explain this. Uh, you know, we, we can't make sense of it with God, but, you know, God's mysterious, so that's okay, we can, well, that doesn't bother us too much. But, you know, um, with Buddhism, you know, how would you explain it? And so I started saying, you know, when you're the oppressor, then, you know, it creates the karma very easily to become the oppressed in the next life. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, that was the wrong thing, you know. And I know that culture. I know, you know... God, how did I say that? Well, they totally blew up, you know, totally blew up. So, you know, what I realized, you know, there are times to teach people karma, and there are times not to teach people about karma, you know. And when they're hurting, that's not the time, yeah, because they misinterpret it, yeah. How would I explain the Holocaust? Just like that, you know, if in previous lives. Oh, okay. What do you mean, the two versions? The Buddhist version and the Jewish version. Okay. The the Jubu version and the Buddhist version. Okay. The the Jewish version would be um, God had some meaning uh, behind this, and we don't understand it, but we trust that God did this for a purpose. It goes back to the the um, chapter in about Jove in the Bible, which I never read, but apparently Jove was 
afflicted by very serious illness. And the chapter is all about him questioning God and almost losing faith in God. But at the end, he, I think, kept his faith, something like that. So, you know, at, you don't... And Elie Wiesel, I saw somebody here was reading one of Elie Wiesel's books, yeah? So did that question come? Was he asking that question in his writings? He was losing faith in God because his experience was so terrible during the Holocaust. So, yeah. And he said he met other people in the Holocaust who were also seriously questioning their faith in God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was, you know, for the people who were very religious, it wasn't just the physical pain, it was the spiritual pain because they couldn't make any sense of it. Hold on, let me finish. With... From the Buddhist version, you would look at it and say, you know, people who are are being oppressed now in a previous life probably as a group somehow were oppressed. Okay. If so then if you're talking about Jews suffering now and that means they were oppressors in the past, people flip out. If you talk about Nazis who harm people now in a future life being born as the oppressed people, then people can accept that better. It's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but from a, a Buddhist viewpoint, we want to have compassion for the victim and for the perpetrator. Yeah, both sides of it. Because you know it's so easy to hate the perpetrator. That's what we naturally do. But when you think that the perpetrator is creating so much negative karma that's going to result in incredible pain, how can you hate that person? Yeah, because you understand karma even though they don't. And you know if they don't purify, this is what the result will be. Okay? So it, it, we use it to inspire ourselves to do more purification, to make very strong um, um, determinations never to act in that way and, and inflict harm on others, and then have compassion for the people who did that, at the same time speaking out and saying those actions are harmful and damaging and, you know, we've got to stop that. You don't just say, oh, well, the Nazis created negative karma. You know, they're sending themselves to hell. We don't need to get involved in it. No. No. When there's, you know, oppression like that, we need to say something. Yeah. The event of the, the, the students at the University of Syracuse asking that question or in the beginning of our UU classes, I had a couple come up to me one day before the class and say that their son had just been killed in a car accident. And what's the Buddhist worldview? And I think I went where you went, and we never saw him again. You know, I, something about untimely death and that something had happened. You know, he, they had been coming to the class. They had some sense. But in those situations, like you said, they don't really want... They don't want the answer, but what what kind of comfort do you give when that's yeah. the question? You, you say, I mean, this is where, you know, um, 
you know, Marshall Rosenberg and, you know, these kinds of things come in, you say, wow, it must be a lot of suffering for you. It must be very confusing and painful. And I'm sure you really miss your, your son greatly. And you want to do something that benefits him as he's going forward into his next life. And then you give them, like the four immeasurables is something that I give to people who are not Buddhist. And I'll, I'll say, recite this ten times in the morning and ten times in the evening and think about what it says. Yeah? And that works very well because you've given them something positive to think about. And, you know, when people ask questions... You have to listen and figure out what is the actual question they're asking. Because when people say, how would you explain, you know, the death of my child in a car accident or in a school shooting or something, that's not the time to explain karma. That, and that person isn't asking. They may say, what's a Buddhist view? Yeah, But they're not they don't really want to know that. What they're really saying is, I'm hurting. Yeah. Will you say something that can help me heal and, and, if you can, point me in a good direction? So you answer that question, not the literal question that they're asking. Yeah. And this comes up many, many times, you know, to really... Listen, and, you know, what are people really asking for? And sometimes uh, they're asking just that somebody listens to them and, and says, yeah, I, I can understand what's happening with, to you. You know, I can understand why you feel that way. And that's often, they may have a very complex question, but that's actually what they're asking. Yeah. Even among Buddhists, a couple of years ago, I was talking with a friend who is Buddhist and he had been practicing for many years. And we were speaking and I just said really casually, like, yeah, we are experiencing the results of our karma. And he got so upset because, yeah, he went through a lot in his life and he still had a lot of pain and suffering and I didn't detect that. So mm. even among Buddhists, yeah, I was not skillful enough to yeah, catch that, but he, he got really, really mad at me when I said that. Yeah, yeah, just because somebody's Buddhist and knows the words doesn't mean the ideas in here. Yeah, unfortunately, wouldn't it be nice if we knew the words and that meant we had realization? Yeah, well, how did you manage the blow up? Um, with how did you manage the reaction in the moment when you're giving the talk to the Jewish people? What did you do? I realized I should... What did I do? Yeah. Uh, I can't even remember. You know, I, I tried to backtrack and say... <laughs> and, and, you know, and say, no, karma doesn't, isn't talking about being blamed. It isn't, you know, God... We're not... Uh, saying that God is inflicting harm because, uh, harm because the Jews did something wrong. And, but I didn't go into this whole thing of because we don't believe in God. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I didn't say that. But I just, you know, said, no, we're not, we're not saying people deserve harm. 
you know, and then I probably said something about Job and, you know, because that's in the tradition, you know, just questioning why things happen and we don't really know and it's not blaming anybody. Stupid. <laughs> yeah. When I was in Varanasi, I heard a story about uh, one of the teachers, monk teachers, who had been chased away uh, from a community of untouchables, oh, Buddhists who have turned into Buddhism, but primarily because they were castaways from the Hindu. But I, cast, they were cast. They were of lower caste. Yeah. The audience was of lower caste, yeah. but have converted to Buddhism. Yeah. And they have uh, invited a Tibetan Buddhist monk teacher from Varanasi uh, Institute and had him speak. And somehow he touched on karma. And they had heard too much about it being used against them yeah. by their Hindu uh, brothers and sisters. And they, didn't, they were not ready to hear it. And I heard that he was... Literally chased. I mean, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And just note about uh, how we are limited in how much we can actually benefit, except mm -hmm. for our motivation, and to be to be able to do better job. How uh, Buddhahood is the answer <laughs> is also one thing, way to think about this. And the other thing is in 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 the karma system. Uh, in the common community, people uh, kind of explain it or answer, uh, understand it as though like your karma is making others do the things to you, which is not the, not not yeah. that I come across, and and so that way we would have some place to put the accountability in in the in the perpetrator. Yeah. Uh, yes, and at the same time. Uh, at the same time, our our uh, interpretation of the situation in the karmic sense, and thus let ourselves be indifferent or even be kind of saying you got it, uh, you deserve it like that. It's it's that it is a case of yourself again creating a negative karma. Yep. So those uh, <laughs> aspects need to be. Really brought up and very seen. clear, yeah, yeah. I, you know, because people so easily forget that you know the whole thing about compassion, yeah. And uh, when that thing comes up, I, I often give the example of you know, uh, if you were in a car accident, you know, you were a pedestrian and hit by a car, and you're lying in the middle of the street bleeding. And somebody walks by and goes, too bad, that's your karma, and then keeps going. You know, is that how somebody should respond? Yeah, no. Doesn't know karma. Yeah, except, exactly. Except implying, uh, what do you call, applying it to others, but not to himself. So, yeah, <laughs> and doesn't realize how much negative karma they're creating yes. by saying such a thing. Yes. Yeah. The first time I went to Airway Heights, I met a man who, and I don't remember what he was saying. Maybe he said something about he had created bad karma to be in prison or something. And I said, you know, you created virtuous karma to have a precious human life. Mm 
<laughs> and he reached out, touched me, and said, thank you. And because, and I, every time I was there, I think I reminded the people that, you know, we have a precious human life because we've created the karma for it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, that's something very uplifting for the people who are incarcerated, you know. And then they realize the preciousness of the Dharma because it's meeting the Dharma that made their human life a precious one. Yeah. And uh, they appreciate yeah. Any kind of um, hardships we're going through that might be ripening of our karma, mm -hmm. we can still remember that even even someone that doesn't have a precious human life, being born as a human is a sign that you've created yeah. virtue in the past. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it, it, it's interesting when you're trying to guide people, you have to see what it is that they need at that moment. And you don't lie, but there's so many different ways to approach a situation that we have to sense out what is the best one for this person in this moment. And sometimes we get it, and sometimes we blow it. But we learn. Yeah. <laughs> but the teaching about karma, when we experience pain, okay, I personally find it very helpful. It stops my complaining. It's like, why am I hurting? I created the cause. Yeah, so why am I blaming anybody else? And this is, uh, you know, my, my big, uh, uh, I don't want to say, under, you know, understanding of karma came uh, when I got hepatitis in in uh, Nepal, and I was, you know, this was what year? 1976. And, you know, I like, and when you have hep, you can't move. And I was really miserable. Uh, I won't give you the long story, but at some point, somebody came in with this little book published by the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives. Um, about the Wheel of Sharp Weapons with Gishino and Darge's commentary on it. So I could barely lift the book up, but I started reading it. And then I got to, I forget what number verse, 9, 10, 11, somewhere around there. And it says, you know, when our body is aching with pain and like this, uh, then this is the wheel of, uh, but, you know, karma returning you know, upon us for actions we have done. And then it talks about, well, why? What kind of actions did we do? Harming other sentient beings physically. And, you know, I have harmed other sentient beings physically. When I was a kid, I used to gather up all the snails in the garden and step on them, squash them, because I thought I was helping my parents have a beautiful garden, you know, and killing snails was no problem. But, you know, so I, you know, definitely I harmed other little things, swatting flies. I used to, you know, compete with my brother of how many flies we could swat. You know, so, okay, I don't know if my hepatitis is a result of those actions. It was probably a result of something I did in a previous life. But I could see how I would hurt other beings physically because I've also done it in this life. So... 
you know, I'm, I'm sick with hep as a result. That made sense. So it, you know, it stopped me from complaining, oh, the people in the kitchen, they just have little boys helping the cook and the little boys don't wash the food, fruit very well. It's all their fault that I got sick. No, there was none of that. Okay. It was like, this is, I created the cause, so don't complain. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when it talks, uh, when you use that for uh, dealing with your own afflictions, it's, it's very, very effective. You know? Why are people not respecting me? Well, how do I relate to other people? Do I respect them? Yeah, in this life, automatically we can see times we haven't respected others. And even though this karma may, you know, and probably has been something in a previous life, you know, who knows what in the world we did in a previous life if, you know, it's bringing a very severe uh, a result in this life. So you have to, you know, if you're... Uh, if the person that you're speaking to is Buddhist, yeah, and you know they've heard teachings about karma, and you know that they have some understanding about it, then you can gently say, you know, well, you know, we create the causes for what we experience, yeah? So if you inflict pain, you, you experience pain. Yeah, it doesn't mean that what we did in the past was the exact action, you know, that we're suffering from this life. But it's the whole idea when you inflict pain, you know, that, that's how the karma ripens in experiencing pain. So, um, you know, we can remind a, a friend about that, but make sure it's not his friend uh, <laughs> who got angry. <laughs> So you kind of have to sound somebody out and see how they're how they're doing, you know. Because it's so interesting when there's times uh, of suffering. Very easily, our mind goes back to what we were brought up with. Yeah, because we haven't completely uprooted the uh, the things we learned as kids about, you know, if you're a sinner, then uh, God's going to punish you. And so then we blame ourselves and get depressed, even though we're Buddhist. But when we suffer pain, you know, if we haven't really spent a good amount of time reflecting on karma, then we easily go back to what we were told when we were kids. Yeah, which um, we certainly don't want to do. Okay, so 129. Whatever joy there is in this world all comes from desiring others to be happy. And whatever suffering there is in this world all comes from desiring myself to be happy. Okay, another verse that can be misinterpreted. Okay, but the first two lines, whatever joy there is in the world all comes from desiring others to be happy, you know, 
That makes some sense. But, or and, we also have to understand what make others happy means. Does it mean we give everybody what they want? Does it mean we do whatever other people want us to do? When it talks about making others happy, does that, is that the meaning, you know, that other people have ideas about what we should do and think and so on, and to make them happy, we do those things? No. You know, it doesn't mean that, because they may be seeing things from their worldview, you know. For example, if you're dealing with your parents when you want to ordain, yeah, they're, they don't think of multiple lives, at least most of our parents. I don't know, anybody's parents here think about multiple lives? Oh, yeah, two, yeah. Good. Well, you drew, grew up in Buddhist cultures, you know, even though your family might not have been staunchly Buddhist, that idea was there, yeah. yeah. But if you grew up in a culture where, you know, your family didn't have that idea, then, uh, you know, and you want to ordain and you try and say, you know, I want to create good karma for future lives and I want to improve the quality of my mind so in future lives I can benefit you in a way of leading you out of samsara to nirvana. You know, your mom and dad are going to look at you like you're out of your mind, you know, because that's not their worldview. (laughs) Okay, for them, there is this life and the purpose of life is to have uh, be well respected to have money you know to be successful in your career and the top of the ladder and to give them grandchildren um but don't leave the grandchildren with them uh, all the time because that's a pain in the neck just bring the kids over when they want to see them for a short time and then take them and you can have them um you know <laughs> Uh, so, you know, that's their worldview. So talking to them from our worldview is just, and then they get so upset and confused, yeah? So we have to explain it in a different way, you know? And that's why I, I, the way you explain it is say, you were such good parents and you gave me a really good, ethical foundation you brought me up well yeah and you taught me not to lie and you taught me not to steal and you know to respect others and so what I'm doing and wanting to ordain is just a continuation of all the good values that you instilled in me as your parent as my parents and I really appreciate what you did as my parents you know you say it that way and then your your parents feel Oh, wow, you know, I did a good job after all. Because we don't realize it, but parents often criticize themselves for the way their kids come out. You know, what did I do to deserve a kid like you? You know, oh, I must have been a really horrible parent. But when you say to to your parents, and it's true, that they gave us a good uh, ethical foundation, and we're so glad they did, 
And what we're doing now, we're not rejecting the family. Yeah, we're just continuing what our parents taught us. You know? And then, then they feel good and they, under, and they understand what we're doing. You know, at least a little better than if you try to tell them, you know, well, I'm going to liberate you from samsara in the future. <laughs> you know, and you, mom and dad look at you and you're going to think, you're going to what? <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was another one that happened in my family. The, the cat, uh, they had a little kitten who had fleas. And I was just visiting my folks for a short time, and my mom wanted to wash the cat and with some kind of thing that killed the fleas. And I said, don't kill the fleas, you know. And um, my mother looked at me, and she said, you tell us not to kill the fleas, but you're killing us by your decision to do this Buddhist thing. Okay. <laughs> Okay, mm, uh, yeah, uh, let's see, how can I say something in the next, the next time they do that? This kind of thing, you know, maybe you don't say anything because I, I used to walk around Green Lake in, in Seattle, those of you who knew Green Lake know that people are fishing there, and it would pain me to see the fisher, fisher people. They were usually men, fishermen. And but I couldn't go up to them and say, you know, don't catch fish. You're creating the karma to, you know, have a short life and your future rebirth. You know, they would have caught me with their, you know, tied, died their, you, you know, uh, fish, fish wire around me. You know, so there's, there's times when you just can't say things to people because it's just not in their worldview. So... You either have to find a skillful way or, you know, kind of not say anything and make prayers for them or, you know, changing the subject. In conversations, you know, when you see people starting to argue, yeah, if you say don't argue, then, you know, what are they going to do? Well, why shouldn't I argue? <laughs> you know, but uh, you just change the subject. So you take... I saw this with Lama Yeshi. He was so skillful with this. Because people in the teachings, uh, in, in class, you know, Q&A answer, somebody would raise their hand and then start to give a speech about their whole world view about, well, Lama, what do you feel about there being all alternative universes in which... Um, you know, who we are now is also there living in the future or another uh, alternative uh, universe where who we were before is also still alive. Uh, what, what do you think about that, Lama? You know, do, do um, Buddhists believe in these kinds of alternative universes and time travel? Yeah? Lama didn't look at these people and go, oh, God. <laughs> he said, oh, you mean you're talking about having different lives than the life that we have now. Yes, Buddhists believe in that. We, we talk about rebirth. And then he talked about rebirth. 
So he just changed the, he took one word or one idea from what those people were saying and then he steered the conversation in another direction without having to say, you know, you fool, do you believe in that kind of junk? <laughs> yeah? Or shaming the person for asking a stupid question. No, he was very respectful. So, uh, you know, very good example. Mm -hmm. Okay. But how you speak to different people is going to be different. If you're speaking to a Buddhist friend, and you know that you know that they've studied the Dharma for a while, but right now at this moment their mind is like out to lunch. With them, you might say, "Oh, think of it this way." Yeah, don't say you're wrong. You know what happened? You don't believe in Buddhism anymore. You're saying that kind of junk. No, you don't say that. You say, <laughs> "Yeah." That, that that may be what you want to say, but it doesn't it doesn't do any good, yeah. And if our purpose is to benefit others, that doesn't benefit them, you know. So you have to say, ah, I understand you're in pain, but remember how you know our teacher taught us. Da 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 da. da. Have you thought of it that way, or tell them a story? of your own experience and how you used a dharma technique to, to deal with some kind of problem you had. You know, and that could give them an idea of what to do. <laughs> you don't look and go, oh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, there's a verse in, in um, The Wheel of Sharp Weapons that talks about when you're disparaged and people don't respect you and ignore you and put you down. That's what you're experiencing now. Let me pull out that verse and tell you what you did in your last life. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. But in verse 129, yeah, so when it says all comes from desiring others to be happy, it doesn't mean whatever we give other people what they want all the time because sometimes what they want harms themselves or harms others. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and there's disagreement about this. I have one Dharma friend who, uh, you know, when it comes up, you're at a gas station and somebody comes by and asks for some money and you have a sneaking suspicion they're going to use it for drugs or alcohol. Me, I say, sorry. Yeah. And anyway, you know, I don't usually have a lot of money with me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's like, n no, I'm sorry, I won't give you anything. My friend, who's also a nun, says, oh, I don't care how, how they're using it. You know, they ask for it, I'll give them something. But I don't think that, that that's suitable because if they go and use it for alcohol or drugs or whatever, then it's just continuing, the, you know, the harm in their life and the harmful actions they do that affect others, okay? So people have different ways of understanding this. Um, but, of course, as you all know, my way is the right way. Yeah. <laughs> no, but think about it. Think, you know, think about what you want to do. Um, 
So it doesn't mean, you know, being what other people want you to be, doing what they want want you to do. You have to learn to think for yourself. Okay. Now, of course, if your teacher tells you to do something, you know, that's a different case because they have the same worldview as you do, and they're in the position of guiding you. Yeah. So when His Holiness is giving a teaching, doesn't matter how many thousands of people there, you know, and he says, you know, speak truthfully. You don't say, well, he's speaking to the other uh, thousands of people there, but he's not speaking to me, you know. Um, no, you know, you're getting an instruction and, and you know yourself that that's the right thing to do, and so you follow through with that. Okay. So that's the first two lines. All comes from desiring others to be happy. Which is true, you know, if we really look around and we think, how can I make somebody else's life a little bit more joyful? Yeah, we will see lots of opportunities to do that. Now, especially, you know, when you go to town yeah, and you're in the hardware store, you know, just talking, chatting with somebody to create a good relationship, to let them know that uh, what, you know, that they're important. You know, so you talk about the kind of, I don't know, special kind of nails that you're buying and ask their opinion and expertise, and then they feel good. Yeah? Um, or just talking talking to somebody, you know, how's your day? And, yeah. Um, so that kind of thing, you know, there's so many small things that we can do. Uh, you know, many people come here for lunch, and this may be uh, the only time in eons that they have any contact with Buddhists. Yeah? So, you know, we pay attention to them, we talk to them, we show them that Buddhists are kind people, and okay, we shave our heads, and you know, wear funny clothes, but we're kind people, and, you know, we have something to say that might help them, yeah? But we have to show that kindness first, yeah? Instead of, well, glad you came here, sit down, and I'm going to give you a book and, you know, tell you all about the disadvantages of self-centeredness. No. <laughs> yeah? Okay, then the last two lines of there, about, uh, and whatever suffering there is in this world all comes from desiring myself to be happy. So then it's so easy to say, oh, if I want myself to be happy, that's wrong. That's sinful. I hate the word sin. I think that there's a few words I think should be deleted from vocabulary. Sin blame, fault, those three of my favorite ones. I have a few other ones, but those are the ones that, you know, thinking of everything in terms of sin. Sin is heavy, isn't it? Yeah, when I talk to people, how they grew up, sin is very heavy. So um, this, you know... 
and whatever suffering there is in the world all comes from desiring myself to be happy. So I should not want myself to be happy. Yeah. And I am sinful, so I should do everything I can to not get, to not be happy, so that that's my penance. The more I suffer, the more I'm purifying all my sin from the past. No. Okay. That's not the meaning of this. That's how people who have that kind of worldview interpret it. That's not what Shantideva is meaning. Okay. But Shantideva's meaning is when we are sitting there and every single thing we do, we think of ourselves and our own benefit first, yeah, then we're going to wind up doing things that, that cause pain to others. Yeah. And so just marching through life, uh, thinking, you know, me, I, my, and mine, whatever I want, I'm going to do, and nobody's going to stop me, and the whole world's against me, so I've got to attack them to, to stick up for myself. You know, he's talking about when we have that kind of attitude and behavior. Okay. So we may not be perfect examples. There's some people that we read about in the newspaper that are perfect, you know, pretty excellent examples of that. We may not be that far extreme, but we have elements in our life and we have times in our life where we behave like that. And we should not overlook these things and say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Well, that's nice we're not as bad as so-and-so. So-and-so is a habitual liar and doesn't even know the difference between truth and false, you know? So I'm not like that person. Is that a reason to be proud? <laughs> no, you know? I, you know, sometimes I'm extremely selfish and put people down and don't respect them. So that's what I've got to look like look at and correct in my own behavior, okay? Because, you know, whatever suffering there is in the world all comes from desiring myself to be happy. You know, when I have that attitude of, you know, my happiness before anybody else's, yeah. and how dare they ask me to work in the forest? How dare they ask me, you know? I have far superior intellectual abilities. So don't tell me to work in the forest. That's maybe why you should work in the forest. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So how can I wiggle out of it? Yeah. I don't like working in the forest. Have you ever looked at why you don't like it? Well, I get dirty. Yeah, I get dirty. Yeah, uh, living here, you're going to get dirty anyway. Aren't you? I mean, how, how we live out in nature. It's Our clothes are usually dirty, aren't they? Even you just walk from here to there. Yeah. One of our friends is telling me my time's up. Bow wow. <laughs> oh, there's a question. <laughs> 
Okay, let's do the question. What's that one's? That one's marvelous moi or beautiful beagle? <laughs> yeah, two names, a lay name and a dharma name. <laughs> the question is, is copy, copying dharma translations that have a copyright on them negative karma? It depends on how much you're copying, whether you've asked permission and received permission. Okay. Um, if it's one verse and you're quoting a, a few verses in a book or in an article you're writing, then the custom is you just give the reference where other people can find that, that verse, you know, that you're doing. If, um, oh, we just had this recently, um, some, the people uh, from Nalanda wanted to copy some uh, chap, two chapters from following in the Buddhist footsteps about ethical conduct, you know, because they're a monastery and they found those chapters helpful and they said not everybody could afford the books, so can we copy those two chapters out? So I wrote to the publisher, to Wisdom Pub Publications, and told them the situation and asked them and they said yes. Yeah, I personally, even though I'm the author, I don't have the power to say yes. Two, two chapters is too much. If they wanted to copy five pages, that I could say, you know, because lots of times um, professors will say, can we photocopy five pages? That kind of thing I can say. But two chapters, that's a lot, you know? So you refer to the, the publisher and ask them. Yeah. But I've, I've uh, seen some of the things that I've written in Singapore being republished in Taiwan from, with people who didn't ask permission. Yeah, of course I would have given permission and I was totally happy to see that the books were published. But, you know, the polite thing to do is to ask. And if somebody says no, then, you know, you go by that. 